Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, staff pastor here at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. And today in our following along with the Come Follow Me schedule, we have arrived at Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Plain In Luke chapter 6, much of the content is similar, but the uh, context is different. Jesus was on a plane, not (laughs) P-L-A-N-E, but P-L-A-I-N in Luke chapter 6. And of course, in Matthew chapter 5, all the way through Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is giving his sermon on the mount. And so... um, I'm so behind in getting to this recording this week. It's probably going to be pretty quick because it just has ended up being a very full week. But I have uh, some thoughts to share for sure, and uh, hopefully you find this valuable. So um, Matthew 5 is where we're going to be. And uh, at the start of the chapter, as Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount, he gives the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and so on. And then he goes on to talk about how his disciples are salt and light, and how he came to fulfill the law. So that's basically the first half of Matthew, which gets us to Matthew chapter f- or Matthew five rather. And that gets us, gets us to Matthew 5, 20, where Jesus made this incredible statement. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So out of all the things that we could examine here, and there are many, many things that are worthwhile, uh, anything that the Word of God says is worth studying, of course. But of all these things, this seems to be most critically important. Because Jesus here at the end of verse 20 is putting on the line the kingdom of heaven. And your entrance or denial of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So this is pretty massive, critical stuff here, isn't it? I mean, this is just big time. This is as, as far as the Bible goes in, in biblical terms, this is as big as it gets. Will you or won't you enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's all contingent upon the first part of verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, your righteousness is what determines your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not be accepted into the kingdom of heaven. Massive, massive, massive. Well, let's uh, think for a moment about these scribes and Pharisees. How righteous were they? Well, uh, you can think of Jesus approaching this statement from a couple of different angles. One angle would be, their their hearts being far from him, hearts far from God. And we see this later in Matthew's gospel, uh, I think Matthew 11, but you'll have to check me on that, where 
Jesus basically is quoting Isaiah and saying, you know, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Well, that shows that even though they have the outward appearance of righteousness, and they seem to be very genuine religious people, well, God is judging their hearts, and he has determined that they are actually far from him. So that's one way you could approach this verse and say, well, see, Jesus is saying you don't need much righteousness because the scribes and Pharisees weren't righteous at all. Their hearts were far from God. Another way that you could approach this verse is by looking at the externals where Jesus is actually playing into the mindset of the culture of his day, and he's letting the people around him know that you must be perfectly righteous to enter the kingdom of heaven because you have to be even more righteous than the most outwardly righteous religious folk of the day. I think this is where Jesus is is coming from. I think this is what he's doing, is he's telling the people, hey, look around, these scribes and Pharisees, you know how you kind of hold them up as the closest to God in the culture, the most righteous people around? You actually have to be more righteous than them to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he's doing is actually uh, saying many things with this one phrase. Uh, One, he is kind of letting us know that they're not righteous because they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven as they are. The scribes and the Pharisees, according to this statement, aren't going to enter the kingdom of heaven because you have to be more righteous than them. And he's also pushing the people toward self-despair because if there was ever an epitome of thinking that you could earn your own way into heaven through your religious deeds, that you could earn your own exaltation status through your own work, effort, covenant-keeping, obligation, fulfillment, etc., it would be the scribes and the Pharisees. They are just like the epitome of that. They were so focused on the externals of religion, keeping up the good works, that they would be righteous people who are accepted by God. And Jesus says, no, they're actually not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And for you to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to have a righteousness that exceeds them, which for the average guy, Joe Sixpack, he's going to hear that and say, well, then I got no chance. And I think I think that's where Jesus wants people to, to be in their mind, is that I have no shot at making myself righteous enough for the kingdom of heaven. And if you're listening along through this series, and here you are arriving at this lesson, and you're open to this, this is what Jesus is saying to all of us, is you've got no chance at making yourself righteous enough for the kingdom of heaven. Because if the scribes and Pharisees, who have devoted their entire lives to being righteous enough for the kingdom of heaven, if they can't do it, well, then you can't do it. You, you definitely can't. And what follows in Matthew 5, as we continue considering the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus giving multiple introductions to the law by saying, you have heard that the ancients were told, or you have heard it was said, blank, but I say to you, blank. And what Jesus is doing through each of these, the the method 
of teaching here is that he is, first of all, affirming the law. So he's not denying what the law says, but he's affirming what has been revealed in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He's also, in a sense, showing the heart of the law, that God gave the law not just for outward performance. He didn't give the law so that people could have a competition about who looks the most religious or righteous or whatever. That's not what that's about. But he gave the law to reveal the holiness that he demands based on his own holiness. Um, And Jesus here, too, is giving us a higher standard where he's saying, you've heard it was said... um, Let's just go with verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Wow. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. So the law didn't say what Jesus says to not resist an evil person. Here, Jesus is saying, that's really the heart behind the commandment, and that's the standard that I'm calling you to. I mean, how if Jesus wasn't God, I mean, how egotistical would this be? Well, you've heard it was said this, but I say to you, there's a higher standard. Wow. Well, Jesus is God, so he, he can say that, right? Verse 43, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Of course, love your neighbor is directly taken from the law. Uh, hate your enemy is not directly taken from the law. But that's kind of how they understood that. Jesus said in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So even though Jesus isn't quoting the law here where he says, hate your enemy, the, the Old Testament law never said love your enemy. And so Jesus here is taking us deeper into the heart required for personal righteousness to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That is a higher standard. It's a higher law. It is, I think, appropriately what the New Testament calls the law of Christ. And as we're hearing this, we think, wow, that is pretty astounding. Uh, Who could do all of these things perfectly all the time, because that is what is required. And the answer is, none of us. But Jesus did, didn't he? If you think of someone who turned the other cheek, if you think of someone who loved his enemies perfectly and prayed for his persecutors, Jesus is the one who fits the bill. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He's praying for his persecutors. Uh, loving his enemies. There he is washing the feet of the disciples and caring for Judas. And he knew exactly what Judas was up to. Um, Jesus was the perfect human, the only perfect human to live the fullness of his earthly life in perfection. So we've got Jesus doing what is required to be righteous enough for the kingdom of heaven, and we have everybody else, everybody else, no matter who you think 
Number two is on that list after Jesus. Number two and down, all of us not being good enough because Jesus was perfect and whoever number two is in your mind (laughs) as far as living a great life, well, that person isn't perfect. Jesus was perfect. And that is what is required to enter the kingdom of heaven, to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, a righteousness that perfectly maintains not just the externals of the law, but the heart of the law as revealed in the life of Christ and this higher standard of love that Jesus introduces. So that puts us in a pickle, doesn't it? We are in quite the pickle. Because if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven... This sounds pretty despairing and hopeless. What are we to do? Well, the New Testament expands on this. We don't just have Matthew chapter 5. We, of course, have the rest of the New Testament. And I want to take us to Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, starting at verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul here is saying that if you put yourself under the law and you're seeking it as a means of personal righteousness, it's it's a fool's errand. Because the purpose of the law is to shut you up. Uh, that every mouth may be closed, that all the world may become accountable to to God. That is the purpose of the law. By the works of the law, no one is going to become innocent before God. No one is going to be good enough for God. Okay, this is a huge concept that if you can grasp and agree with the Bible on this, you're going to be doing great spiritually. By the works of the law, no one is going to be good enough for God. That's what this is saying. And through the law comes the knowledge of sin. As we see what God's righteous standard is, we also see how we fall short. So Romans 3, 19 and 20, give this commentary that is very much in conjunction with what Jesus was teaching there in Matthew 5. But let's keep going. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Stop. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, up through Jesus' life, all we've had to go on for beholding the righteousness of God is the law of God. But Paul here is saying that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, in a different way, in a new way. Keep reading, verse 21, being witnessed by the law, and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Wow. Let's dwell on verse 22 for a moment. The righteousness of God has been revealed now, not through the law, but apart from the law, through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ, believing in the gospel, is not a work of the law. It's not contained in the law. It's apart from the law. Jesus has come, and he has raised the standard. He's fulfilled all the obligations of the law. And when he says it is finished, now there's a new way that we 
seek righteousness. It's not by going to the law and despairing, which is what God was having people do beforehand. But instead, we see Jesus' fulfillment of the law, and we go to him, and we behold the righteousness of God manifested in him. And by faith, the righteousness of God abounds to us. Notice in verse 22, it says the righteousness of God, not just in Jesus Christ, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By people exercising faith, believing in, trusting, relying upon Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is now accessible. This is pretty marvelous stuff. The end of verse 22, Paul says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or an atoning sacrifice or a covering in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wow. So much there to see, and we'll cover this more when we get to Romans, I imagine, though that The whole book of Romans is just two weeks in this study, so we'll have to talk about Romans before and after those weeks to really hit more topics. But what we have here is this idea that all have fallen short. That's verse 23. There is no distinction. All have fallen short. But there's also no distinction in who can be justified. Those who believe can be anybody, Jew or Gentile. Anybody who looks to Jesus Christ to be declared innocent by God, by trusting in his merit, well, that person will be justified. It's a gift. Verse 24, our innocence or our righteousness that we receive from God is a gift by his grace, and it's through the redemption or the redeeming works that are in Christ Jesus. God displayed him as a satisfactory payment, a propitiation, in his blood, through faith in what he has done, we are declared innocent. We are recipients of his very righteousness. And this was to demonstrate the righteousness of God. He had passed over the sins previously committed because he's a very patient God, and he did so for the demonstration of his righteousness now, so that he would be just, meaning a good judge. God is not a bad judge. He's a perfect judge. And because of this satisfactory payment that was paid on our behalf, not paid for ourselves, not earned for ourselves, he is now the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We owed an infinite fine to God because of our sin, and we were held captive in our sin. But as Christians... We now have faith in Jesus who releases us from that debt because he has paid the infinite price. Now, if you are not a believer in the biblical gospel, you still owe God an infinite debt. 
and you can't pay it yourself. You can't work your way out of this hole. Uh, you have messed up over and over and over again. You've offended a holy God, and he is a good judge. What is the good judge going to do? Well, a good judge punishes evil. And if he didn't, he wouldn't be a good judge. So how will you escape? How will you escape the judgment that you are rightly owed? By relying on another to come in and pay your fine. Someone who has the funds. Someone who can not just get you up to zero, but someone who will actually put an infinite amount of credit on your account. Someone who can give you the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees so that you may enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is the role of Jesus in his saving works, his atoning death, and his resurrection. One more passage I want to close with, and this is Philippians chapter 3, where Paul gets very personal about how he has received this righteousness from Jesus. In Philippians 3, verse 7, Paul says, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What, what things were gain for Paul? Well, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was, he was in that group of scribes and Pharisees, and he was very much into advancing the cause of his religion. He persecuted Christians. He made sure that this false teacher, Jesus, wasn't going to overtake the Hebrew tradition. And he was proud of his standing. He was, he was uh, circumcised the eighth day, trained under the best teachers in Judaism. I mean, just the epitome of a religious superstar. I mean, to put it in you know, terms of uh, Utah land where I lived, you know, he would have been, in this religion, a Melchizedek priesthood holder. He would have kept the word of wisdom through and through. He would have attended all the the meetings and he probably not just would have been a, a bishop he would have been in you know the quorum of the 70 uh, he would have he would have been just one of the top dogs in religion and externally flawless as far as his fellow man is concerned it just you know Saul of Tarsus he was keeping the law in perfection well he says here He has counted all that as dung, as rubbish, as loss. How could he get to that point where he would just forsake his religious bona fides, his pedigree? How could he get to the point where he just says, throw it out? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Wow. 
Well, verse 9 is critical. This is a bumper sticker on my car. It says Philippians 3.9. I just think it's that important. Paul says that he wants to be found in him, in Christ. And he explicitly says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So as Jesus, all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, where we started, as Jesus is pressing people into the law and saying, this is the higher standard, this is what God requires if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, it had to push people to the point of recognizing that they couldn't do it on their own because they had to see their need for Christ. That's what Galatians 3 says. In Galatians chapter 3, it talks about the law as a guardian that held us until Christ came. And now that Christ has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The purpose of the law was to drive people to Jesus, that people would see their own sin, because the pride is, or the uh, law is either going to push people to pride or to despair. Pride, like Paul had, well, look at me, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. Or despair, I can never be as good as a Pharisee. That's what law does. That's what works do, religious uh, works that you have to keep in order to earn a standing with God. They push you to more sin, either pride or despair. So Paul here is saying he's not counting on his own righteousness anymore, but instead he's relying on the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, not that comes on the basis of our own earning or our own faithfulness or our own keeping covenants and ordinances. Paul says, nope, I went down that road and there's not heaven at the end of that road. There's not actual righteousness at the end of that road. But let me tell you, the way to access the righteousness needed to enter the kingdom of heaven is to see that that righteousness is bound up in Christ and in Christ alone, and to trust in what he has done on your behalf, dying in your place for your sins, taking the judgment that you deserve, rising again for your justification, rising again that you truly would be declared innocent by God because Jesus is who he said he was, and he is able to impart life, and death has no dominion over him and you will be set free from the law. You will be set free from the power of sin, because the power of sin is the law. You will be set free for, from despairing. You will be set free from pride. You'll be set free from the fear of death, and you can be joined to your Creator through the Mediator, Jesus Christ, today by believing in Him. And you can do it right now, wherever you are. You can do it with a simple prayer of faith, even though you don't understand everything yet, but you understand this much, that you cannot make yourself righteous, but that you have to rely on Jesus. And if that's you, I would love to hear from you. Reach out. We'd love to have a conversation. But eternity's on the line unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You can be sure of that. Well, thanks for listening. Hope these are helpful. May you study well as God has given you the Bible that you would hear from him. And may you come to the place of deeper faith in the Lord Jesus. God bless.